drop. Hey there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, the director of StoryFort, and you are listening to StoryFort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this March we are postponed until September of 2021, then we reboot in March of 2022, but hey, we're still here to tell you about all things Treefort. Today we're going to have a little pod on pod action with uh, Anthony and Amber of Behind Gray Walls. You're going to get that intro here in one moment, but I just want to say thanks for listening. We really hope you're doing well as we kind of round into spring and uh, hopefully things will be uh, returning to some sort of normal soon, but we really appreciate you listening. We want to thank Up Is The Down Is The for our theme music. We want to thank Eavesdrop, E-A-S-E dot D-R-O-P dot com, our podcast friends who put this together for us. And yeah, we'll see you at the fest, but hey, you know, get those tickets at treefortmusicfest.com and check out all things about the old Idaho Penitentiary as well as some other cool history of Idaho things at history.idaho.gov. And here is our episode. Enjoy. This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's if it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Hello, welcome to the old Idaho Penitentiary. Thank you for joining us for this uh, very special first live podcast. <laughs> um, so we're teaming up with Story Fort, part of Tree Fort Music Festival. As many of you might know, we were supposed to have a music festival on March, and it did not happen because of the pandemic. And we are going to have a first ever Story for It podcast stage dedicated to podcasts um, with a lot of local Boise podcasts and podcasts that we're flying in, and Behind Gray Walls was going to be one of them. So instead of waiting until all the way until next September, we thought we'd try doing some live events, doing them uh, safely and <laughs> as best we could. So I want to give a little introduction 
to the podcast you're going to hear. Behind Gray Walls is a podcast from the old Idaho penitentiary about Idaho history, true crime, and the stories of the inmates who lived here. Written and produced by employees of the Historical Society, Anthony and Skye. And they'll do a little, I'm sure, a little more of an introduction. We have a special guest who I'm sure they'll introduce because <laughs> Skye cannot make it. Um, we have a few, just a couple of events to plug really quick. Story 4 is having uh, is hosting Scary 4 on the 31st, October 31st at Kin, and that will be announced with tickets very soon. And then they also have a weekly Story 4 Presents podcast that kind of, you know, everything about, uh, about Tree Fort Music Festival in general is covered on that podcast. And this podcast, this night's podcast, will be rebroadcasted on there later. So uh, enjoy, and we'll do a little Q&A after if you guys have questions, and I'll bring the microphone around. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our very first live podcast of Behind Gray Walls. Thank you all for coming out here despite COVID. But it is safe. Yeah. It is safe. We're no safer very... place in prison, right? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> We're all outdoors. This is great. Thank you. Of course, Sky can't make it today. She is, you know, working on her PhD down in Texas. So I got the next best thing. Our the longest timer of us all, Amber Byerly. That that's right. I'm the you know, Sky fifteen years from now, <laughs> apparently. I'm the older, less good looking version. But uh, no, I I thank you for letting me do this and mostly thank you for letting me just say your guys' words and research because I'm a smart boss and I actually let you guys do the research for me. So I know it's good. Yeah. What do you do here, Amber? What's your job? What do I do here? Many, many <laughs> things, right? Um, no, I'm the Historic Sites Administrator. So, uh, you know, administer this site along with uh, our other sites, which are, of course, in Pierce, uh, Franklin, and Hanson, Idaho. So yeah. we, we do many things here. And I think, you know, this is just one great program of many. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, letting us do the podcast. Uh, without Amber's approval, we wouldn't be here. So, yeah, this is wonderful. Well, why don't we uh, get started with some some true crime stories? Of course, we were supposed to be at Tree Fort. We wanted to talk about musicians, artists, authors, poets, all these different things. Maybe we'll include some ale for it into this as well tonight. So let's start with our source. You know, I would have oh, yeah. liked to have known that earlier. I could have brought my ale for the ale for it. No, it's that's, not too late. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this one. I, you know, learned about Nancy Francis Christopher, you know, many years ago we were doing uh, escapes and of course we'll get into some of these stories, but I think uh, if ever there's one that, that people can connect with and, you know, a bit of a poet herself or had a way with words. Oh, so, absolutely. you know, without further ado, I'll get into to Nancy's story yeah, here. So, Nancy. yeah, Nancy, uh, Francis Christopher, which I should say she actually preferred to go by Francis. I did not know that. Um, again, you know, I let you guys do the research here. Uh, she's born in Cameron, Texas on July 3rd, 1932 to Claude and Jetty. Uh, her parents divorced uh, and her father gained custody of Francis, but she ran away, might be uh, foreshadowing, uh, and returned to her mother's home uh, enough times that her father finally said he, he, he finally gave up and let her stay. 
She lived with her mother and stepfather and got along with them well at 15. Uh, however, she was arrested for vagrancy in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So from Texas, makes her way to, to Oklahoma at 15. Um, that was her first brush with the law. And then a year later, at 16, she got a job, moved out of the house. She married her first husband. Again, she's 16 years old. Um, this would have been about 1950. His name was James William Nichols. And then two years later, uh, when she was 18 years old, they did eventually have a son together, uh, but they were divorced within a year of that. So a lot of life early on there for Nancy. She did claim that, that James was an alcoholic. That was the reason for the divorce, which um, obviously in, in those days, they you know those were things that they cited a lot more uh, in the records. A month later, she married Arthur Henry Zanders. She had another son. So we've got two sons here. And I, I bring that up because it, it goes along with when we're doing this research, sometimes it's really hard to determine years. And you're going to hear a little bit about, you know, why that's maybe confusing because the second son probably comes sometime in between 1951 and 1954. Okay. So I'm not good at math, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but it's going to come to, to pass here, here a little bit later. So she, she divorces, uh, Arthur Henry Zanders in 1954, uh, she explained that it was due to him committing bigamy. So, you know, I don't know how she proved that, if he had another marriage or whatnot. Obviously, we had some here that were in for bigamy as well. Uh, In May 1955, she married uh, J.D. Christopher, hence how she had her last name at the time. Uh, By the time she did arrive at the Idaho State Penitentiary, this would be three years after that. So 1958, she was separated from from J.D. She said this was due to her 10th grade education and his lack of education as well. Um, Later in the questionnaire, I I find this really interesting. I think it's probably one of the more telling things about Frances. Her father explained that, you know, she had this kind of life of crime. Uh, because she seems to want to do something to keep on the move and is never satisfied unless she is doing so. I feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and and think about the time that that Nancy is this type of person, Mm -hmm. you know, the 1950s, a woman that's wanting to be on the go and independent and just moving that was not common uh-huh. and, of course, culturally and societally not really accepted. Mm. So, you know, she's already off on, on a bad path uh, as far as by those standards, right. by that, the, yeah. the standards of the time. The, like housewife that she's expected to be. Like, right. She's a little tumbleweed. Yeah. Right. You know, that's what we, we find with a lot of these women mm. is they're not meeting the cultural norms of the time. And had they been in a different time, would the crime be necessary? That's mm. sort of, you know... A question I, I, I often ask, obviously. You know, she, she forges a path committing crimes ranging from the vagrancy in Texas, California, Oregon, uh, to assault. She swindled checks and, and forgery in Nevada, California, and Texas. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. You know, the reports say that, that Nancy was with her own 14-month-old child, but we've really only found evidence that there were two sons that she had. So this is 1958, and so she shouldn't have a 14-month-old child. And and again, I think this is where as historians you know, you're you're making some inferences, and you know, yeah. maybe the child was earlier, maybe something that was lo- or older, maybe something was lost in communication. But mm-hmm. so she's with a child. Um, the, the the report said it was her own child, and then she has her friends from Texas, Marianne Gardner, who we'll hear more a bit more about as well, uh, Billy Dingus, and then Richard Kyer, and they come up with this heist. They're in Las Vegas, and they're they're doing some drinking, doing some gambling over yeah, several do. days. Yeah. I, it's Vegas. I mean, <laughs> even if it's 
it's the 50s. This is probably a heyday of Vegas, actually. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, yeah, Fremont Street, all that business. <laughs> they they come up with this idea. They steal this billfold from a woman from Boise who's vacationing there on the strip. Uh, they gamble away all the cash that they stole, and Nancy decides she's going to use her ID to forge checks. So, again, goes along with this, like, she happens to get this billfold from a woman in Boise, mm-hmm. and that kind of gets the next step of this, like, she's going to go do something. <laughs> um, so, again, what happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> she crosses the border into Idaho, and, and with these other folks, uh, they continue forging. Uh, they defrauded stores in Nampa, Caldwell, Payette, Ontario, Nyssa. But the spree finally comes to an end, November 15th, 1958, when uh, Francis is busted after cashing a 25 check she signed with the name Mrs. K.E. Farley at a store in Emmett. So they really made their way across southern Idaho here. The clerk thought uh, Nancy and Mary seemed suspicious after they flashed the woman's Boise ID and uh, decided after cashing the check to to follow them out the store. So this clerk's on to them. I wonder if she had a thick like Texas accent. I, right. Or I, I, if like, this, you know, she's, she was, you know, find out she's a bit of a larger gal. You yeah. know, she's about 5'9", 195 pounds. And uh, if this woman just, you know, she had to flash it really quick because she didn't look a thing <laughs> like this person. Um, you know, this is all, quite often why criminals get caught, right? Yes. They're not, don't, don't always do the best and brightest things. Don't think it through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he sees them get into this car. He sees it has Texas plates mm. and there's two men in the vehicle. Obviously, he's thinking something not, isn't right, and he alerts the police. Ada County officers spotted the vehicle heading towards Boise, again from Emmett, and he pulls them over, and they were held uh, until the Jim County police could arrive and lock them up. And and this is where, you know, again, they talk about the child being taken away mm-hmm. and uh, her child being taken away to the hospital. And the, the newspaper said you know, basically they were treating the child for malnutrition. And you have to think, if they're on this cross country trek with this little child uh you know probably not getting milk every day probably not getting all the nutrients you know but clearly she's got him and taking him around everywhere so um you know i'm a mom uh, i'm I'm a mom that doesn't adventure that much but you know i was (laughs) i hope not (laughs) not that way well not not that (laughs) way at least Uh, Nancy was in jail for a short time um, before she actually had to go to the hospital herself. So her appendix, she, you know, she has an appendix operation. So this is all, you know, this happens November 15th, 1958. So she gets back from the hospital. Uh, They both plead guilty. It also shows you how quickly uh, justice occurred in Mm -hmm. those days because they're they're here at the penitentiary within uh, 10 days. So they arrived November 25th, 1958. When they, uh, when she did arrive, uh, she did admit that she uh, had had cashed the checks, and she says, "I can't, I cannot remember the particulars of these checks, but they totaled about $117. I was the only one who wrote all the checks and cashed them. The others were just along with me. We were all sober." I, I don't think I believed that last part all yeah. the time. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and and I think they got a little more trouble if they admitted <laughs> they were were drinking when they did these yeah. things. So so she comes. It's November 25th, 1958, and there that brings the total um, in the women's ward to 11 and of course we know it's it's pretty crammed in there yeah. the 11 is is a, is a tight squeeze yeah there are seven cells in there and with bunk beds so there are a lot of double cells in there those are tiny cramped cells if you haven't seen it check it out before you go tonight yeah. right so this is where we first learn 
you know, all those particulars about uh, Francis. Uh, again, you'll hear me say Francis and Nancy because we kind of have the formal names. So um, she's 26 years old. She's from Cameron, Texas. She's got blue eyes, blonde hair. Again, a bigger, bigger gal. Um, she's 5'9", 195 pounds. She's vaccinated. She doesn't have any tattoos. Says she drank occasionally, smoked. Didn't gamble or do drugs. Okay, wasn't she in Vegas? Wait a minute. Let's <laughs> right. go that back a little bit. Sense. Right. Uh, a member of the Baptist Church. I don't think they approve of that. Not quite sure. Uh, we'll do the research on that later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she did say she quit school in the 10th grade, and her occupation was listed as waitress and housewife. Mm. Not forger. She didn't Not list for- that oh, as, no. Okay. no. She didn't list that. But I always love these things because, you know, so it's like, teeth, fair. You know, yeah, what did yeah. that, I mean, I don't know. What did that mean back then, yeah. uh, you know? Now she's got moles, she's got small scars across her nose, and then a distinguishing C-shaped scar on the palm of her left hand. So, you know, the many adventures of Francis. She was out doing something, right? Um, Well, and this is where, you know, this is where it gets interesting with those letters um, that we can see quite often in their their files. Um, Her husband, her estranged husband, obviously, she left him in Texas to to go out gallivanting with some friends. He writes a letter. Right. What? Yeah. She's 26. <laughs> she needs to do something. Yeah, maybe. So, okay. Right. <laughs> so he writes this letter. His mom, so her mother-in-law, writes a letter to the prison board uh, requesting her release because she needs to come take care of these two young children. Whoa. So again, goes back to those expectation of roles. Right. And I'm sure, you know, that maybe mm-hmm. the elderly mother's like, I don't want to take care of these small kids. He's thinking that's not his job or duty to do that, but at least it looks like support Mm -hmm. for her. So, I mean, this is just, this is, you know, she was there November 25th, so almost right away they're writing these letters. In this time, she's pretty well behaved. Uh, Seems like she's a good candidate for early parole. However, December 28th, 1958, so this is a month and three days, right? (laughs) things would change. The direction uh, and and trajectory would change. Uh, Now, typically the front door of the women's ward was locked at 4 p.m. and they called it a bull lock. Uh, And the women, however, they weren't required. So they're locked in the ward, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to be locked into their cells until 1030 at night. So it's about shortly before 9 p.m. on the 28th. um, There's an alarm bell because obviously they they had a system in which they could pull that Mm -hmm. alarm. If there's an emergency, some one of the women are in trouble, anything Mm -hmm. like that. And so it alerts the turnkey guard, which is just right up here uh, in the administration building that you all came through. And the guards rush over to the women's ward. They hear this commotion. When they entered the outer gate, they come in that way. That's still locked. They come in there and then they notice there's tables and boxes and chairs and the short ladder that they used to get over the north wall. So that's going to be the one that's closest to the foothills. The front door was open and one woman was out of her cell. She's the one that actually you know, sounds the alarm. alarm. Uh, Seven others were locked up. So what happens is Francis and her original partner in crime, so Marianne Gardner is here as well, Uh who's on that first voyage in in, uh, in Nevada, um, as well as Virginia Pugmire, separate crime, all that, just a friend (laughs) they met while they were here. All in for forgery. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're the ones that climbed over the wall at about 730 is what the what the women say. Uh, before they left, they'd overturned tables, chairs, broke several dishes. They threatened all these other women, told them not to alert the guards. Uh, they lock all the other women in their cells, uh, except for the one who it just wouldn't clasp. Yeah. So they had put wire around it to shut it. So what she had done in that time is tried to unwind it. And it took her that long to, till 9 p.m. to actually yeah. alert the guards so um so she's trying to that that woman's uh uh you know doing as best she can she gets this wire off uh they broke the lock off the front door with an iron pipe and then they had piled up all those tables and then the barrel next to the the prison wall and that's that's how they climbed over so it's some determination there to get out but you know, I I look at that and it always it always baffles me because people say, well, how did they how did they escape from there? Because it's not quite like the wall here where mm-hmm. it bumps out a little bit more. It's a little smoother. So, yeah. um, a grit and determination, I think, is the answer. So, so. It was the same day here. It's December 28th at about 11 p.m. Uh, the owner of the Desert Inn on U.S. Highway 30, which of course is going, uh, you know, east and south. Mm-hmm. So it's about southeast. You're 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 heading down into Nevada. Um, I think the turnoff there is from I-84 is like Bliss, where you go down uh, 30. Uh, there's a this owner says, okay, I saw three women. They stopped at my restaurant. Uh, one got out of this 1952 Chevrolet sedan and walked inside, looked around, and then hopped back in the car. But a cab driver uh, reported picking up a trio of women and dropping them off uh, in the eastern outskirts of Boise and reportedly around Mountain Home. Okay. So it's like, you know, kind of on the way there, but sort of like maybe they had split up at some point. Maybe these are just kind of different reports. And then there was another one that said a trio of women were seen hitchhiking near Pendleton, Oregon. So we're the three heading southeast. We're, you know, right. And and basically we're in class. You know, at the time, Warden Lewis Clapp, he's saying, you know, there's still a lot of mystery connected with this thing. That's his direct <laughs> quote. And and obviously, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. You know, it sounds like the, the women had separated. And so Nancy and Marianne kind of went west, make it down to California yeah. and split up. And then Virginia, she's the first one that's captured. And just a few days later, she's captured uh, while hitchhiking near Kimberly. Uh-huh. So that makes okay. sense that she was doing maybe the, the highway through there. So she's locked up in the, the Twin Falls County Jail. She refuses to tell police. You know, no narc here. Yeah. No chirping from time, this bird. That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, so on January 3rd, however, so a couple days after that, January 3rd, 1959, so we're into the new year, uh, Warren Clapp ring ring gets a phone call from mr al gardner he is the father of marianne gardner in el monte california i'm not sure where el monte is but it's a long ways from boise idaho that's quite the trick (laughs) and uh he had arrived at her doorstep and hey mom and dad and uh he called the warden immediately (laughs) um Dad, <laughs> dang! You got my back. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was safe. Uh, Clap told Mr. Gardner, he, you know, he says, you know, we'll have the, you know, just tell the authorities we'll lock her up in the local jail there. We'll collect her, and he said, no, I'll take her back myself. We'll drive all night if necessary to get there Sunday. Dad, Papa, that's a little bummer. <laughs> Papa, don't preach, no. man. He, uh, yeah, no, I think I think she was better off uh, with the local authorities. I, I want to know what that drive was like. Oh my 
gosh. Right? Is it complete silence? Is it yelling the whole time? Oh. I don't know. He also told Warden Clapp that Mary uh, had spilled the beans, that Nancy had uh, split off from Mary in an Oregon town called Tangent near, near Corvallis. Um, yeah, she's the narc. She's, <laughs> she's, 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 yeah, okay. she's the one. Uh, uh, Mary was loaded into the car along with her mother and grandmother. <laughs> Again, I just <laughs> love this visual. Like, are they just taking turns yelling? Like, okay, when we get to the Nevada line, yeah. Grandma, you take over. It's probably one of the only situations where she was, like, excited to return to prison. Right. And, like, be dumped <laughs> off here. <laughs> Thank God for the uh, solitude. Get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I love, you know, just these comments from from Warden Clapp. He, he had said, uh, Mr. Gardner appeared to be quite a forceful man <laughs> on his ideas of right and wrong. Apparently, when his daughter appeared at their door, there was only one thing in his mind, and that was to bring her back. He said his daughter told him he she wanted to come back, but had trouble making up her mind to do it herself. Sure, <laughs> sure, Marianne, like, I needed you to help me. I like that a prison warden is saying that about this dad. Like, right, like, like dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy's got right oh. and wrong, you know, yeah, on the brain. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, and it sounds like so. Apparently, she was only at home for like an hour and a half before she comes okay. comes back to Boise. And again, this is January third, so we're only oh. a few days, you know, <laughs> a, a very short trip <laughs> for her. Uh, on January tenth, so now we're a week after uh, Marianne has been recaptured. Nancy was then recaptured mm. in Austin, Texas. So she made it near Sky's wow. territory. Yeah, they're yeah. in Texas. Uh, so, and and of course, what did she? Why was she busted? Passing a bad check. Um, and she was awaiting trial in, in Texas. And, and she said, oh, by the way, I escaped from the Idaho State Penitentiary. And, of course, they yeah. send a telegram to, to Warden Clapp. And he sends down a guard, yeah. um, these traveling guards, of course, that, I, that we had. I don't and, blame her. I've heard about, you know prisons in texas it's going hmm. let's go back to idaho please let's see texas prison you know oh by the way i escaped from there yeah. i should probably go yeah, back yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so she has finally returned january 31st so she had a yeah. not really a month of freedom she only actually had a you know a yeah. week or two of freedom yeah. and oh. then uh, was brought back uh, here um all three women were actually charged with escape because we know they actually you know charged people with escape after mm-hmm. uh, that law was passed uh, nancy's handed a two and a half year additional sentence sentence uh, following her forgery sentence. And so they actually, once she completes her original sentence on October 25th, 1960, she's given a new number. Mm-hmm. So now she's technically a new inmate and she, be, you know, begins her second stint for escape. Nice. The the great thing about um, Nancy Francis um, is that we, we have great records uh, in the clock, which thankfully the Idaho State Archives has, um, I believe, all of the editions, all, all the about, known yeah. editions mm-hmm. of, of the clock that we have. And the clock is a prison newspaper. And during Nancy's time, they actually create this section for, for women. Yeah. And so we hear her voice a lot, which is great because we don't always get that unique voice. She took classes while she was in the women's board for bookkeeping. She was described as a very good student, shows a definite advanced advancement, very good attitude, cooperative, helps other girls in their studies. So whatever reason, this escaping thing, she's, you know, trying to do the straight and narrow after that. Uh, she also, you know, she takes up writing in the clock and she wrote and served as the editor in a, in a section that um, during her tenure, it started as Chris's corner. So it, you see that moniker, Chris, I guess after her last name, Christopher. Yeah. And then finally just, they called it the, the women's section. And, or I should say, 
the women's section and then women's world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, which is the cooler version of Wayne's world, I think, (laughs) right? No, no Garth, no Garth there. Um, And it was usually at the end of the the clock. Nobody gets my 90s references, I don't think. At least the live audience, hopefully, (laughs) once it's recorded. Somebody was giggling. Okay, good. Women's world. Women's world. Party time. Um, but so so in this thing, she she's making it as as homey as she possibly mm-hmm. can, right? So she's writing book reviews, movies, music. Um, she documented all of the activities, which this is the priceless stuff for us as researchers because yeah. we actually know what the daily life was mm-hmm. like. And I love it. They, they use a lot of nicknames for each other, yeah. which actually isn't helpful for us all the time because <laughs> then we have to dig and be like, okay, who's, you know... Yeah. Little stump, you yeah. know, like who is this person? But it, you know, top number yeah. two. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what? Yeah. Betty Sue. Nobody yeah. was named yeah. Elizabeth. Who is Betty Sue? <laughs> but yeah, you know, just kind of the general mood, uh, mood of what was going on. And she also writes some poetry while she's in there. Yeah. I love these quotes, and they're, they're some of them are going to be a little bit longer, but they're just that good. I just want mm-hmm. um, Francis's voice to come out as much as possible. And so, in in August 1960, she she says, um, among the various activities engaged by the women, one remains outstanding, the art of dressing dolls. <laughs> this is me speaking now. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, apparently, that's among <laughs> everything, dressing dolls. How old are like, these women? This yeah. Is, okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Back to Francis. Several of the women are occupied with this hobby, and quite often their efforts are rewarded with a beautiful creation. From the doll dressed in a fancy crocheted ball gown to the old-fashioned doll dressed in print, the parade continues with the dolls attired in the model of our foreign countries, including Norway. (laughs) That was a purposeful pause. Sweden, Germany, and the Orient, as well as the fashion of our newest state, Hawaii. Hawaii. History lesson there as well. Okay, back to Francis here. A hobby such as this is rewarding, serving to keep the mind occupied and giving one a feeling of accomplishment. Do you get the sense here that maybe, uh, you know, Chris, Francis, Nancy, uh, her audience may not always be the women or anyone else. It's look how well I'm doing. Yeah, maybe the parole board or the warden. Look at at this very womanly thing that I am doing. You know, I'm, I'm getting back to the cultural norms. Um, tongue in cheek, of course. Uh, in September 1960, she, she also had a, another great article. Um, this one being uh, a little more accurate, and I think you really hear a little bit more of who Frances actually was. And she said, she says, a, um, a woman inside prison walls is looked upon as being hard and cold as steel. But is she? Trying to analyze the heart of a woman in prison Locked away from home and loved ones is like trying to see through a steel door. Because of past and present hurt, she locks her heart against further hurt. Many things make up the heart of a woman, and when they are drained away one by one, it leaves an empty spot that can never be repaired or replaced. Maybe it is a letter from her husband saying he no longer wants or needs her. Perhaps it's a letter from a child care agency saying, We are now in complete custody of your children and you can never have hope to regain them. You are an unfit mother, etc. Maybe it's the death of a loved one that she cannot see for the last time. It is an awful thing to hear a woman cry over a baby she will never see again, or hear her rip her soul apart for a love that has stripped her of everything she was living for while waiting. She has to live with the knowledge every day that if it weren't for that one mistake, she would now be caring for those loved ones 
And when this realization finally comes, she finds it is already too late, for she has thrown everything to the winds. Then the soul, searing sobs, come to tear her apart. The heart and soul cry out in one tormented cry. It seems to say, just give me one more little chance in life. Just one more chance to prove that I can be a wife and a mother. Let me be a daughter or a sister you can be proud of. Please, please, please. Then the answer comes, no. You don't have to be told the sister is ashamed to be seen with you. The husband cannot find it in his heart to give you that chance. And the agency sees you only as a woman that has lost her right to be a mother. Then the heart begins to steal itself. And then the heartaches come. It is like a giant hammer beating upon a molten mass. And at last, all that is remaining is a thing forged in a steel heart. It is no longer a thing that can produce beauty through love, but a beating mass of bitterness. Bitterness for all the circumstances that have stripped her of everything a woman holds dear to her heart. All she lives for now is the hope of a new life and the hope that she can forget those cherished things that was once all she wanted in life. And if the people that had helped cause this hurt could see her now, see the misery written in her face and know the pain in her heart, they could believe her when she says, never again will I trade my life of a loved and cared for wife to a woman of the wild side of life. That's intense. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think when I when I read that, certainly, obviously, um, you know, speaking a little bit to an audience there, uh, mm-hmm. but I but I hear a lot of her heart and soul. You know, I don't think it's a stretch to say all those things that she lists, the, the letter from the husband, the oh, agency, God. that those things happened to her. Yeah, you know, these are things that were taken away from from her. She's not speaking mm-hmm. theoretically uh, of, of what she's hearing. That, um, and that's like reflective to today, like. Right. These same feelings are, oh. Right. I mean, wow. and, and, you know, we hear uh, some of those conversations from the women just down at the correctional facility just down, down the road here. From us that here. just, yeah, you yeah. know, want that, that extra chance mm-hmm. uh, that they're, you know, sometimes are provided and sometimes are not. Wow. Um, but Nancy, uh, Nancy, Francis, Chris, I love <laughs> she's got many names. Uh, she's granted her final discharge on April 25th, 1961. And uh, her last editorial in the clock ended with a, a heartfelt thank you and an, and an au revoir. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she does write. And again, I just I love having their own voices here. So uh, she says, this being my last issue, I would like to take a little space to thank all the good people who helped me write this column every month. Without the help of everyone, I'm afraid I would have been a miserable flop at writing. So I wish to thank the clock staff for their assistance. And I wish our magazine and my successors the very best of luck. Old laughing heart, Chris. And of course, the the editor printed this just below. It said, uh, from the clock staff, you're welcome, Chris. The pleasure of working with you has been all ours. Walk lucky. I love that. That's my new moniker. Walk Walk lucky. lucky. Yeah. Like just if you had a lot of hard (laughs) things happen, walk lucky. Uh, So she leaves prison April 25th, 1961. This women's section of the clock uh, kind of bounced around between several other women after that. And uh, but it never really quite had that. That, that sincerity, that voice um, of of Chris again after that, and I think we've you know we, we've seen that in some of that writing. Uh, she did remain out of trouble. Uh, she had a brief run-in with the law in 1970, but mostly because of her prior.
prior conviction, she had a firearm, Gosh. and that's, of course, illegal. That was Wichita, Kansas. And then really, after that, after 1970, all we know is that she died at a relatively young age, 62, um, on March 2nd, 1995, in Harris County, Texas. So that's that's Nancy Christopher, or Nancy Francis Christopher, slash Chris. Wow. Um, that's a really revealing story. Right, so, right. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, just kind of living life on the wild side to really yeah. having uh, having ever, the world at her fingertips, but also just so far away, not being able right. in the time she was in to sort of live that wild side and then having yeah. all those regrets of, you know, that's yeah. a too common tale, mm-hmm. obviously, Absolutely. from from here. I, th- this might be the most shameless segue, but there are wonderful stories just like Francis's in our book, Numbered. You know, we put this great thing together, where, which Sky did the, all the preliminary research, put all these biographies together of our 216 That's women. Right, yeah. And we put this great collection of stories together and just yeah. beautifully uh, designed. So we had great designers. You know, I served as a co-editor. You did a ton of research. Everybody on staff did yeah. something with this book so much work, and then yeah. great local authors that contributed to the mm-hmm. articles so uh yeah. again shameless plug out of the <laughs> out of the way for for our numbered book but it does yeah. it reveals so much of these these stories that we just don't know that much about mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah all right well great work amber i know nice. it's a it's a tough act to follow but i have a feeling you've got something good In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. The Old Idaho Penitentiary became part of the Idaho State Historical Society in 1975. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Well, I've got a a different sort of artist here today. (laughs) Uh, I've got a fellow named Harley Lloyd Carringer. Just to go off sources today for all of our podcasts, Idaho Daily Statesman, of course, uh, Library of Congress Chronicling America, The Inmate Files for both Nancy Christopher and Harley Carringer, articles from The Clock, course, oral histories that were taken with former guards and inmates, and you'll hear some of those tonight, and Jonas Franklin Galano Gulidge star and his diamond-studded Gretsch guitar in concert at the Idaho State Penitentiary, which we're all going to listen to here in just a moment. That's a really simple name that you just said. It is, yeah, yeah. So Harley Carringer, number 8204 and number 12325, he was born with a twin brother named Charlie on October 28, 1930, in Robbinsville, North Carolina, to Will and Mary Carringer. In total, there were five Carringer children, four boys and one girl. And by 1935, the family moved to Pocatello, the gateway city. It's a hub um, for railways here in the Northwest. So he had kind of a similar childhood to Nancy Christopher. Uh, His parents actually divorced when he was eight years old, and his mother actually filed for a divorce, charging Will with nagging 
So the wife is charging the husband with nagging. And uh, she was upset because, quote, she had to labor and work to help maintain the home. And she was also upset because he was jealous of her because she, quote, was entertaining other men. Yeah, so... <laughs> That's a strange admission. Yeah. Like, yeah, a little... She was just entertaining, though. Yeah, yeah just, just... We're entertaining. <laughs> Probably not the same way, no, I'm going to guess. No, I, I don't think so. Right. Yeah, so little Charlie and little Harley and one of their older brothers stayed with dad, and then the oldest brother and the daughter, the youngest, went with mom. And it wasn't long until everything started to crumble for little uh, Harley Carringer. He started to act out. He got to fifth grade, and after that, he was sent to the industrial school in St. Anthony, which is kind of near, it's in Fremont County in eastern Idaho, kind of near the Wyoming border, Rexburg, Idaho Falls area. Uh, This industrial school was for the problem children. We didn't really have any sort of place before this. And that industrial school was open from 1903 to 1970. Couldn't find what crimes he committed, what landed him there. It was probably petty theft, just little things like that. But uh, we see the very first start of his, his art when he's 14, and he and four other boys escape from the industrial school. We're going to see a couple, uh, couple of these escapes here in just a moment. But uh, I couldn't find any details on this. And then when he came to the institution, he actually reported that he escaped from the industrial school twice while he was there. So he gets out of this school about 18, around 1948, 1949, and he finds a job working at the railways back in Pocatello. And he works as a janitor, and he works as a carpenter, a scrap sorter, just kind of really menial, low-level jobs. He gets into his first little scrap of trouble by uh, being quote, checked at speeds up to 40 miles an hour. <laughs> and he gets fined $15. Any idea of how much $15 in 1950, how much that would be today, Amber? Uh, math, Anthony. Remember, I can't do math. Any guesses? Yeah. 100 bucks. $161.27. That's quite a bit for a 20-year-old scrap sorter, janitor, right? And so he failed to, to pay this fine. And uh, I think he decided... He was going to collect the money by committing a burglary in the nighttime at Sands Loan and Jewelry Company store on September 16th, 1950 with two buddies of his. So they got into this cafe that adjoined this jewelry store. It was called the Mint Cafe. And they had, they had scouted it out. They realized that there was attic access from the restroom in this cafe. So they go into this late at night. They bust into the cafe. That's no problem. They go into the bathroom. They climb into the attic. They get into the jewelry store. They end up walking off with, quote, 50 watches, several trays of rings, seven guns. I don't know why they had so many guns in this jewelry store. Uh, A $60 silver belt buckle, an overcoat, and a variety of other items. Not a week goes by before all these are found at Harley's house. All of the items are at his home where he's busted, and the trio is sent to the Bannock County Jail. And they sit there until October 4th, 1950, when around 1 a.m., Harley and his partner, Garth Reynolds, they actually saw their way out of their cell, and they lower themselves from the second tier and escape. They used strips of blankets. They didn't get very far because they had put these strips of blankets in the trash can of this woman. She said, this quote, housewife reported that she had found some knotted blankets in her garbage can. And that was right next door to the jail. 
And so she alerts the police. They immediately run upstairs, and they're on the lookout. So Garth is actually captured the next day. He's passed out in a convertible that he had stolen. With you always is Garth. See, it always comes back. I know, Garth. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So he had actually three stolen guns in his possession, including a pearl-handed revolver belonging to the Bannock County Sheriff. Yeah, so he's he's, <laughs> he's very racing. He reports that he had let Harley out near Montpelier because Harley wanted to go back to Pocatello and collect a couple things. And Harley's on the lam. He's actually captured November 9th, a month later, when he's arrested in Knoxville, Tennessee. I don't That's know not the same direction as right. Pocatello. That's the yeah. opposite way. So I think Garth gave him a... A little bit of a head start. A, a little bit yeah. of a head start, yeah. So the FBI actually collects him. He brings him back to the Bannock County Jail. They both are convicted, and he is sentenced to 14 years here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He enters on May 2nd, 1951, so kind of a similar time, right. uh, as number 8204. And here's Bertillian form. When you arrived, you got all your measurements taken and all that stuff, so... Of course, male, white American, he's 20 years old, he's born in North Carolina, Robbinsville, his eyes are hazel, his hair is light brown, he's 68 and a half inches tall, or 5'8 and a half, he's 125 pounds, so he's really thin, uh, he's got a medium complexion, no deformities, he has two tattoos, he smoked and drank but didn't gamble or do drugs, and he was raised Baptist, so... That's trouble right there. <laughs> Apparently. I mean, just get you to this. Right. Just, yeah. yeah. They have a lot of similarities. <laughs> uh, his teeth were in good condition. He had a small scars like all over his arms and hands, his knees and his shins. And he also had this weird unidentified tattoo uh, on his, actually his left hand next to the letters NY. He probably got those maybe in the industrial school. I couldn't figure out what NY could have meant. He seemed to get along well in prison. Uh, He worked at the Eagle Island, the prison farm, where they raised cattle and pigs and grew most of their food here. And uh, he actually went to school for plumbing, and he really hoped. He kept writing to the parole board, hey, look at my grades. You know, I'd love to get a job in the plumbing field. If you release me soon, you know, I I could probably get something lined up. Uh, He applies, and they refuse him the first time. They say, no, you got to stay there a little bit longer. He's finally granted a parole on April 15, 1952, after se- serving just under a year. So while he's paroled, he actually marries a woman named Nola Hammond back in Pocatello. He's 21 at this point, and she's 17, and she's from Kansas. They get married on July 18, 1952. The honeymoon lasts through the end of that year, and then March 1953, Harley tries to double-cross a farmer. This, uh, over about a week, this farmer had lost about 26 chickens, and they weren't like land chickens or anything like that, hens. They were these weird, strange, rare chickens that he wanted to enter into a competition. So 26 of these things that are like priceless, but also kind of worthless, he's upset. (laughs) So he said, quote, I was watching the coops from the lava ledge and saw a car stop on the highway. A man emerged from the car, and it went on. He walked into the coop and came out with nine chickens. At first, the man stopped, but when I started to climb down the ladder to the coop level, he ran. And the the farmer actually picked up a 16-gauge shotgun, and he fired both rounds into the direction of Harley. But Harley kept going, so he's like, I must have missed him. Well, quote, pellets had gone through the right upper arm and nearly through the right side of Harley's body. 
his brother was the getaway driver. He ran to his brother's car. They went to the hospital. Harley was busted soon after, but he spent quite a bit of time at the hospital. He finally was called a parole violator, March 11, 1954. And after several months, he returned to the institution here on September 16th, 1954. That's not something to balk at. Right. Chickens. Did you get that? That's good. That's I really have to good. explain most of my jokes. <laughs> Bach chickens. So, I'll let you continue, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he, he gets paroled. So he, he enters the prison May 20th, 1953, and then he gets paroled March 11th, 1954. But that doesn't last long because September 16th, 1954, he gets busted again for another thing. He is busted in Delta, Colorado for burglary. And... He gets set into a cell with this ex-con from California. And weirdly, this Delta jail, it was this tiny little town. They didn't have a jailer in there full time. So most of the the prisoners were just left there alone all day. Yeah, you can see where this is probably going. Just like the Bannock County Jail, Harley was able to saw his way out of the cell on December 13th and make a run for it. And they had actually... Somehow this woman was walking by. Her name was Mrs. Faye Michael. And they were like, hey, hey, come here, come here. They convinced her to bring them a hacksaw. And so that's how they escaped. They somehow (laughs) sweet talked this woman to bring her this. So she actually gets busted and she pleads insanity and she gets sent to the state hospital. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good defense. You have to be crazy to just randomly give someone a hacksaw. Yeah. Yeah. So... The, in Pocatello, they print these two escapees mugshots, and not long after, within two days after these mugshots are printed in the in the newspaper, a resident tips off that these jailbirds were with a parolee, the known other criminal from Pocatello named Stanton Castile. They were just, you know, parading through Pocatello. So they find Castile, they contact his parole officer, and the parole officer's like, I just told Castile he could go to Preston, Idaho, where his mom has a little farm. Bingo. So they send some troopers. They all rush over there. And word somehow got tipped off because these two escapees headed south. They headed towards Nevada. Finally, they're spotted two weeks later, December 27th, in Mina, Nevada, which is uh, southeast of Reno. Yeah. Mina. Thank you. I've got a couple of Nevadians. Nevadans. Oh, Thank you. There. Yeah. Hey. Nevadans. That's why we do it in front of a live audience. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's actually a chase when they're spotted and they end up in Hawthorne where they're run off the road and arrested. They actually had three other occupants in the car, a seventeen year old boy and two girls aged fourteen and fifteen, and all are arrested. Yeah, yeah. So they're actually uh, charged with aiding and abetting a jailbreak, which Oof. The the juveniles the are? The juveniles oh, okay. are. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So they are in this Nevada jail just for a little while, and then they actually get sent back up to Delta, Colorado, back to this jail that they had just <laughs> escaped from. But don't worry. They welded a big plate of metal over that old hole, and they put Harley back in that same cell. And just to make sure he couldn't get out, they put a 50-pound ball and chain on his ankle. And a sign that said, do not give hacksaws. <laughs> yes. I bet. I bet <laughs> yeah. that helps. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, okay, we don't need a man in this jail. They leave. <laughs> Monday, January 31st, 1955, the sheriff goes to the jail to take Harley to 
the uh, the courthouse for his trial, and he's missing along with his Weird. cellmate. Weird. So <laughs> he and his cellmate, they actually use the ball and chain, the 50-pound ball and chain. <laughs> they smashed it against that steel plate, busted it out, and then they used this heavy steel plate and mashed that against the chain against his ankle and busted that. And so he's out. They climb out. They walk out the front door. They actually steal this 47 Ford truck, and they head south. And it breaks down in Farmington, New Mexico. So where do you go? They go to a car lot, and they're like, hey, will you demonstrate this uh, 1950 convertible? And this guy, Edgar Parrott's like, oh, yeah, come on, boys. Yeah, let's get in the car. I'll, I'll drive you around. They take him hostage. They tie him up. They actually go across the border into Arizona. They drop him off there in this little town, and he tells the police, and this radio broadcast goes over, and uh, these two officers are listening to this radio broadcast, and they're like, oh, that's that's funny. It's late at night. They see this car coming. It's a convertible. They're like, oh, let's keep... It's them. And they're going about 20 miles an hour. They flip on their lights, and Harley, surprisingly, just pulls over the side of the car. And no issues. They got their guns drawn, but there's no shootout, nothing. They get arrested. They get put back in the car. When they searched the car, there were seven rifles, several pistols, some of them loaded, and knives in this car. So that could have been a messy ordeal right Right. There. It is revealing, though, right, that he yeah. doesn't, He, you know, obviously He's it's a little violent, violent to, yeah. you know, take someone hostage, but, you know. Mm. It, it goes back to Nancy and the chase, you know, right. the thrill of what he's doing yeah. more so than, you know, trying to hurt people, you know, violently hurt people, mm. probably financially hurt a lot of people. But, yes, yeah. absolutely. Kind of to recap, between 1950 and 1955, he's escaped from jail three times, <laughs> twice from the same cell, and he's making a name for himself. And once you know, Time Magazine gets wind of this and writes this article in their February 28th edition of the magazine. And it says, uh, quote, in Delta, Colorado, a month after he sawed a hole in his cell door and escaped from the county jail, Carringer was recaptured and put in the same cell, <laughs> used the 50-pound ball chained to his, his leg to knock off the new steel plate welded to the door, used the plate to break the heavy chains, and escaped again by the same route. So he's making a name for himself nationally with this. Colorado is making a name for themselves in this one. Delta, yeah. Yeah, Everybody wants to get busted in Delta now. (laughs) So they're actually charged with a federal crime. It was called the Dyer Act or the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act, which made it illegal to transport stolen vehicles across state lines. And so they actually get busted and sentenced to two terms of five years each to run concurrently in the federal penitentiary at Levensworth, Kansas. So he ends up spending 11 and a half years in a federal penitentiary. His wife divorces him on December 16th, 1955, listing extreme mental cruelty as her reasoning. And uh, Idaho authorities, right, three years later, they they were like kind of interested. Yeah, we want him back here to spend the rest of his time. You know, he busted his parole. But then they decide, nah, we don't want him after you're done with him. We don't want him in here. He's hopefully be good after that after 11 years there hopefully he gets out and he returns to Pocatello and he seemed to be good for about a year and a half and then the summer of 1967 he goes to uh, a bar in Lava Hot Springs and decides to rob it burglary in the nighttime once again but he's caught in the act 
And so he is sent to the jail. And while he's in the jail, he's actually cell with this guy named Ronald Van Loven, who is in for destruction of an airplane. That's got to be the only person who is in, in our penitentiary here for that. That's yeah. great. Okay. So in July, on July 30th, 1967, Robert was drinking and he decided, I can fly a plane. <laughs> And he I have had similar <laughs> thoughts at Aylfort. <laughs> so he actually commandeers a plane and he swoops above the town of Downey, Idaho, until he crashes into the earth and he's busted and he's brought in. So he's kind of a daredevil, but this is his first time ever being in trouble. And Harley, this, I mean, this guy's been in this prison. He's been in a federal penitentiary. He's a hard criminal. Most of his life he's been in institutions. He talks little Robert into into making bail. Robert's bail is 3,000. His bond is $3,500. Harley's is $25,000 in 1967. So they they pay their, their bonds. And, you know, now they have to pay their bonds. So they go nearby to this guy, this... His name's Reed Iverson. He owns his own little market called Iverson's Market and Service Station. And and Reed is outside. He's having a cigarette. And uh, it's it's at night. He turns around to go back inside. And wouldn't you know, Harley and Robert jump him. They hog tie him. They tie him to his bed. They break into his safe. And they steal seven to $800. So not the thousands that they were hoping for. <laughs> they were actually pretty well known in the town for their crimes. I imagine so. Yeah, so once they found this uh, Reed, the next morning, he says, yeah, it's that Harley and that Robert guy. (laughs) And so they're busted almost immediately, and they're brought back to the jailhouse. And Harley, he actually initially pled not guilty to that Lava Hot Springs thing, but now he's looking at, you know, holding a hostage, assault, another major robbery. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to plead guilty to burglary in the nighttime, and... He gets convicted and sent here. Uh, surprisingly, Robert gets a year in jail and then four more years on probation because he was a first-timer. Um, so Harley enters the institution again on November 13, 1967 with a 15-year sentence and a new number, 12325. And while he was here in the 50s, he actually helped with the construction of maximum security. So if any of you went over there, saw that, the gallows and all that stuff, he actually helped with that construction. Mm-hmm. So authorities here were like, yeah, he's, he's pretty good at plumbing. He, he knows construction. He knows how to finish cement. Let's send him out to the new joint. Let's send him out 16 miles into the desert where there are no walls or fences or anything like that. And we'll ha- let, let what him. could go wrong? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a hard worker. He'll go help build that up. And, of course, what couldn't go wrong, he, uh, he escapes on August 7th, 1968. He just walks off into the desert sometime between 1.10 a.m. and 2.50 a.m. And so 2.50 a.m., they're like, Harley's gone. They start searching for him. They actually sent a helicopter up as soon as the, the sun came out the next morning to search and scour the desert. No Harley. So they think, well, maybe he had a ride. Maybe he stole a car. Nobody's reported a stolen car. Well, he turns up not long after. Back in Lava Hot Springs, he decides to rob this place called the Wagon Wheel Lounge late at night. And the marshal, his name is Jerry Hobson. He catches him in the act. 
Well, Harley had actually stopped in Twin Falls and stolen a car and a rifle. And so when the marshal approaches Harley, Harley pulls his rifle out, sticks it in the marshal's face. Marshal's backing up, and Harley says, turn around, and he starts marching him away. Well, somebody had actually heard it and ran out of the darkness and tackled Harley. Harley somehow finagled his way and beamed the guy in the head, but that gave the marshal enough time to turn around and tackle Harley, throw him to the ground, pull his gun away, and arrest him. So he gets brought back, and now he's being charged with an additional seven felonies. Two counts of kidnapping, two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, one count of aggravated assault and battery, and one count of resisting an officer, and then, of course, the last one, persistent violation of the law. (laughs) Yeah. So... In here, he's also looking at a count of escape, and then, of course, the robbery in Twin Falls, stealing a car. He's looking at possibly 10 felonies he's going to deal with. He pleads innocent initially to all of them, and then finally he decides in April of 1969 to plead guilty to three of them, uh, resisting an officer, aggravated assault and battery, and assault with a deadly weapon. And he's handed eight more years on top of the 15 that he was already looking at. So we've established he's an escape artist. That's that's his artistic talent. He was good with creating buildings. He could he was good with cement and all that. Uh, the other thing that he was famous for was actually brewing a special concoction that we call squawky here in Idaho. Prison wine. And he was very well known about for making all this. And and they made prison wine out of everything. I, I've heard potato peelings. Right oranges, apples, whatever it was, and they grew all their own food, so they had access to that. We have oral histories where they guards found 50-gallon barrels in the basement of the dining hall where they had, you know, a, a fake top on top. You know, it looked like it was a giant barrel of potatoes. It's really about, you know, 20 potatoes and then 40 gallons of squawky underneath that. One of my favorite places that... W- Actually, a former inmate told me a couple of years ago, this guy was in charge of filling all the fire extinguishers, and they were the old pump ones. That wasn't water in those things. <laughs> he was brewing squawky in those, and he would be like, excuse me, guard, I need to go in the walkway. He'd fill up his little his can, and he'd be like, oh, I got to go take this out and just start another batch, and he would just do this and, and fill everybody up with that. So we actually have some oral histories here. He was probably the fire safety officer, too. He was making right. sure there was no fires I ever. Think it kind of explains yeah. what we're looking at right here. Yeah. <laughs> Not a very effective fire extinguisher. <laughs> so, we have an oral history from February 22nd, 1979 with Ron Bacon. Oh. Not that. You were uh, ready to rock and roll. I was. Hey, this, I, I don't know how you can rock this story anymore. I can't believe there's more yeah. to Harley. Ron Bacon, Robert Greenswig, Dick Burney, and Tommy McPhee, they're all in the institution during this this uh, interview here. Technology. Yeah, they made a lot of yeah. squawky. They made a lot of squawky. Right here was a butcher shop. They made a lot of squawky. So the butcher shop was right underneath. Yeah. And then they turned the butcher shop into an electrical shop. Anybody get his recipe? I'm sure he passed it on. 
Now, is Pruno anything different than Squawky, or is that just a different it's name? Just different name. Just jargon. Just, yeah, or some oh, prisons here is Squawky. Either prison you go to, they'll call it Pruno. It's almost all prisons have a, a, a jargon for We actually have an oral history that was taken with Harley Carringer on April 9th, 1982, and he's serving life sentence, essentially, at the institution at this point. So I'm going to let you actually listen to him talk about it. Uh, there wasn't really too much work. Most of the time we spent making homemade wine, which I like. And nowadays I was classified as one of those making because <laughs> I was always in the hole for it. So he said, I was always in the hole for it. So here you're going to hear how many times. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, God, that's many years ago. I couldn't tell you the date I went in there. I don't have any idea. Can you tell me why you put here and you put here and who authorized it? Uh, Tally put me in there for making mine. Like three or four times. He spent a lot of time in Siberia, his first four times for Squawky, and actually, that reminds me... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I do love this idea of of Captain Tally, who is this... uh, Oh, goodness. All the interesting places (laughs) that Squawky can be hidden. Um... Oh, goodness. I've got a good little bag. I've, I haven't burped it yet today. Amber, would you do the honors? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is a, a privilege. Let's see if I, you know, we can get this uh, on I'll audio let everybody here. smell it if, if you'd like after Woo! the show here. <laughs> or you can just take my nose for it. <laughs> Woo! This, this is only about How, 10 days. This but. is, yeah, get all that, get all that air out of there. Yeah, thank you. you. Probably heard the burp on the microphone there. <laughs> Ooh, so, that is I mean, pungent. Yeah, it yeah. stings the nostrils. Like I said, you can get it from two, 2% alcohol content up to 14%. So these guys were having a good time out here with some of this squawky. Yeah, make sure that's sealed. I don't want any of that spilling <laughs> on me. <laughs> uh, I had my first squawky here, actually. It was brewed at Table Rock. If anybody yeah. knows the old Table Rock brew pub, a little bit more filtered than this. But. I'll filter. I've got a sock. I'll filter it. Don't worry. <laughs> sock, underwear. What else do they yeah. have? Their sheets, whatever sheets, they yeah. could. Yeah, yeah, whatever you got. Yeah. yeah. So despite all the trouble that Harley found himself in, he got to participate in a field day held at the penitentiary here on sep- on Saturday, August 19, 1972. And some of the events included the first annual Western Field Meet, a Boise State College skydiver actually descended nearly 7,000 feet and landed near Two Yard. You know, all the prisoners are out watching this. They're having a great time. The North American Indian League, NAIL, they demonstrated all these ceremonial dances. Uh, the Table Rock JCs provided a beef barbecue and trophies were handed out. There's a big trophy ceremony. And then the biggest thing, there was a live concert that was recorded here. And this was with a, a fella. His name was Frank Starr 
His real name is Frank Gouledge, but Fra- Frank Starr is he way cooler. He doesn't roll off the tongue no. as well yeah. as Frank Starr. Yeah. And he was a rockabilly guy. He was born in 32 Mill Creek, Arkansas, and he was playing during the 50s, like with Elvis and you know Johnny Cash, that whole Sun Records group. Uh, and he actually opened his show in 1955 for Elvis. So, you know, he, he really wanted to be popular. He really wished to be a big name, and he never quite achieved that. But some of his albums included uh, Live at Wanda's Club, Don't Furl the Flag, and my favorite one, Dirty Songs from the Hills with a parental advisory. I don't know if I can say the track here. Frank likes eating... Uh, I can't say that word on the air here, um, but <laughs> I haven't been able to find this album anywhere but uh here's, it didn't here's pass the censors apparently <laughs> yeah let me show kind of an idea of what he sounded like and you guys will get this is a this is frank star huh? frank star 1955 a rockin' stall and just a rock, ha, 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 rollin' stall and just a roll, rollin', a rockin' stall and just a rockin', rollin', jumpin' crazy stone. Well, a rollin' stone, forget the normals they say. Yeah, so you get that kind of Elvis rockabilly thing going on, not, right? Not quite the uh, most ingenious lyricist. Uh, <laughs> I think I've pitched a similar song before. <laughs> yeah, the, I looked at the lyrics and... Uh, rock, 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 rolling and rock. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. So, 1972, he decides he's going to join this field day at the prison. He's kind of following in line. Live at Folsom Prison, Johnny Cash album, that's 1968. Stan Quentin's 69, and there are several others. Let's see, uh, Mac Vickery's Live at the Alabama Women's Prison in 1970, B.B. King's Live in Cook County Jail in 1971, Big Mama Thornton Jail in 1975, which was recorded at the Monroe State Prison and Oregon State Reformatory, just to name a few of those, you know, recorded live at prison albums. So, you know, Andy's Frank Starr, he's trying to capitalize on this whole thing. And he comes out here. The interesting thing about this whole album is that he actually got the prisoners to sing most of the songs. And a lot of them, I think they rehearsed seconds before they did it. So <laughs> I won't make you listen to every second, but uh, we'll start with, with his. And you'll you'll hear the sound engineer crank up the volume. So that's that's not me. This is If I Had It Here. late 60s, 70s, you know, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. This was followed by an old country tune called Swingin' Doors, sung by a prisoner named Everett Bond, and this is literally the most twang ever captured on (laughs) vinyl. Oh. 
I'm not used to. I gave up my home to see you satisfied. And I've just called to let you know where I'll be living. It's not much, but I feel welcome here inside. Yeah. That's coming from the heart right it there. It is. It is. I, man, I wish I could do that. Uh, that, that was followed by Jim Anderson, who p- sings I Can't Stop Loving You. And then Ron Cox sings uh, They'll Never Take Her Love From Me. But I'm just going to play a little bit of I Can't Stop Loving You just because l- it gets stuck in my head. I really like it. This is followed up with Harley Carringer, and he is the only person who gets this response. Harley Carringer's gonna sing Mean Mama Blues for you. How much squawky do you think that audience is drinking right here? So we'll play yeah. a little bit. And it's it's literally, this is my favorite track on the whole album. And you'll see why in just a moment. So let's hear that intro. Harley Carringer's going to sing Mean Mama Blues for you. <laughs> Nobody got that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's me, all right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> love this respite for these guys you know right music is the great escape yeah yeah Yeah. i i was gonna ask amber can you yodel uh absolutely normally in the shower um (laughs) sometimes in my office but i didn't know you guys heard that oh so (laughs) dang it so it's literally it's the best track on the whole album in my opinion and i'm actually gonna give 10 lucky people a copy of the album after the show if you're interested right for your ride back to Reno or whatever wherever you're going <laughs> um, so that's on the B side there's there's finally somebody mentions Frank Starr and thanks him so this is 
a fellow named Bill Floyd thinking Frank Starr. And he's about to sing The Great Speckled Bird. Now, are these all originals by Frank Starr? Or no, the, is, most of just these a, are just old, like, just bluegrass. Old, and, okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar with, do, uh, with all of them. I'm a uh, great speckled bird for you now. Uh, I'd like to, at this time, express my deep appreciation. I'm sure that all the rest of the entertainment club combined feels the same way. For Frank taking the time to come down all the way from Spokane to give us the opportunity to make this recording. And I believe that uh, we should give him a big, a big round of applause. What a beautiful thought I'm thinking. What a beautiful thought I I'm thinking. I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you have to think, oh, Frank, and even just some of these guys, we get a kick out of the fact that we were listening to this, you know, right. what, yeah. 50 years yeah. later. Yeah, so. this is all recorded right over in the Rose Garden. So it's just, a, it's amazing. And this weird gem of an album, the Idaho history, Americana, it's so strange. And this is something and we kind of found in the depths of the collection, right? Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, they're in storage. The, uh-huh. the museum takes care of those collections yeah. and stuff. So. And, and this fella right here, this is Captain Munch. He was the yard captain here. He actually donated the album to the Historical Society. So when you look at the album, whoever wants a copy, you'll see his name written on it, Captain Munch. It's pretty interesting. So this album is not well recorded. <laughs> Uh, it's it's rough. There are a couple tracks where you can hear the guitars are playing a couple steps off from each other. But it really actually changed Frank. He decided in January of 1973 to actually announce his candidacy for the U.S. Congress. And his platform, basically, he said that his interest was stimulated by the concert at the penitentiary, and he described the failures of the correctional system as a threat to the safety and well-being of the nation. He called for prisons to be staffed by well-trained, adequately paid personnel, an emphasis on psychiatry for prisoners, and a restructuring of the institution to allow a system of self-government within the prison. He didn't win. Uh, there's no Frank Starr who's in the Congress or anything, but he did help spread the word as this institution closed down in 73 and the new site opened up and, you know, he just made people more aware of the changes in penology. He was also pretty self-aware because he actually ended the album with a classic. You'll get it in one second here. It's pretty fast. <laughs> So, you know, we've heard Harley himself. We've heard other prisoners talk about Harley and hoot and holler for him. Let's hear a uh, guard's perspective. 
on Harley. This is Bill Sanders, and he was recorded on July 3rd, 1992, and he's going to reveal a little bit about Harley, too. Oh, you were telling me about Harley Carringer, and he tried to... Okay, Harley Carringer was a was an old inmate that, uh, incidentally, today's uh, July the 2nd. Harley just died about six or eight weeks ago uh, out at the uh, out at, at ISCI. Uh, Harley was an alcoholic. Harley was a, I don't, I don't recall what Harley was doing time for, but uh, Harley was probably one of the best squawky makers in the world and uh, enjoyed his squawky. Well, Harley was digging out of this place, uh, out behind the kitchen, and uh, I believe it was Joe Munch was walking along the deadline and the tunnel caved in and Joe Munch fell in it. <laughs> and uh, of course that made the good lieutenant a little grouchy. And if I remember correctly, and, and, I, and I, I don't remember for sure, but I think Harley was in the tunnel at the time. <laughs> Better story. And, uh, but the, you know, he was just kind of a real ruddy-faced, skinny little guy that, that uh, you could look in his eyes and see that, that Harley would you know, he was just like a mean little kid, you know. You just had to watch Harley all the time. And so finally, I think it was probably Harley's liver gave up the ghost here just a while back, yeah. and he just up and up and cacked on us. But that, uh, he was an interesting individual. But he'd been in and out of prisons for probably 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, that was his home. He was, he was institutionalized, and that's where he's at. Harley died on February 11th, 1992, while serving out basically a life sentence in prison. And that's it. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> the life and times of Harley. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? All the escapes and we well, have I, a recording. I, I definitely find it interesting, almost, you know, that sort of matter-of-fact tone that, that the guard Bill Sanders had about, you know, this understanding that they had about these kind of harder cases. It's 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 slash-endearing, yeah. but also, you know, just like, you know, you had to keep an eye on this character, but, you know, they also probably made him laugh quite a right, bit with yeah. just all his antics. and. Yeah, you, you know, know what you, you, you got. Like, right. Yeah, with Harley, for sure. <laughs> All right. No. All right. Does anybody have any questions? We co- you covered it all. I mean, for goodness sakes, you guys and your oh, your your research. Where was the album like sold? Like, was that album actually Yeah. Was the was the album available and sold at local record stores, or what's the what's the story there? Here. So it says five dollars on the front, and that's. That's the extent of what we have? That's the extent of it, yeah. I don't know how many were pressed. There's not a lot. Frank Starr's phone number, his phone number is on the back, 208-682-3. So, yeah. Probably toured around with it, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was probably while he was touring. He was also a preacher. And so, right. gospel singer, uh, like like most of those rockabilly guys, they they found God and they became preachers and gospel singers the end of their lives, and that's exactly what happened with him. So I imagine he's probably just slinging them out of the back of his van after shows, and right. just like we still do, uh, <laughs> yeah. <As> musicians. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, though. Yeah, any others? 
yeah asking about escape attempts because we we you identified him escaping from isci mm-hmm. um but did he, he ever try to escape from here I did not find any documented evidence of him making it out. So most of the time we only hear about it if they're successful. So like the attempts that the we attempts. heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you'll hear some attempts. Yeah, but so I, I didn't find any He never any successfully escaped here. Yeah, yeah, or else yeah. they probably would have had a record of it. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. trying to figure out how how far how he got from you know doing his plumbing out there at the uh-huh. new site to to going back home basically right he had made it yeah. all the way home back uh, east in pocatello uh-huh. yeah. I couldn't find any evidence of what happened. I looked and looked and it's these are hitcher days though yeah. right I mean when that's, that's far more exactly common exactly probably what happened was hitchhike yeah 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 yeah, that I really wanted to find that out. And there was all this speculation in all the newspaper articles, but none like specified. All it said was he stole a car from Twin Falls, so somehow he made it He made it, it to far. Twin Falls. Yeah, and stole that rifle in Twin Falls and then next thing you know, he's busted in the middle of the night. Yeah. And if he <laughs> if he had help, he wasn't talking. Oh. He, he wasn't going to chirp about it. No, so, no. being a, a lifer like that, so. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Ooh, the squawky recipe. Yeah, you got to spill it. I've had this. So it's not always that bad. It actually sometimes is, is I'm okay. I'm take it's that as a okay. compliment. You yeah. should. You should. So this is probably my sixth or seventh batch. And I've, I've been working with uh, mostly red delicious apples. They're my favorite apple. I'm like the last person in the world who still eats He's those, an old man with his red delicious. I am 90 years old with my red delicious. <laughs> but that and uh, sugar course lots of packets of sugar and then i use dave's killer bread because that seems appropriate and uh yeah and then i just mash it up and i don't let my wife know about this but i use the cuisinart to really get this one fine i really wanted to see how much alcohol content i could get Uh oh you're getting in trouble when you get home (laughs) it is i mean it's stupid simple right that's the whole point is they could you know not a lot of work and they just get wasted off of this stuff oh for sure yeah and they would sit all along this back patio and they had these water bottles that they'd fill with squawky and they would just sit there for hours every day during their their free time and just just drink and get drunk now there is a wonderful story about a guard saying he could sniff it out right yes yeah yeah. uh his name was was john williams big john is what they call him huge massive man i actually got to interview his son a couple weeks ago and anytime that prisoners were acting strange, they'd be like, all right, send Big John in. And he would he could smell this stuff. And so I asked his son a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you know, why, why was he so good at that? Because he came from a whole line of moonshiners, <laughs> a whole line of hillbillies and he, moonshiners. He literally so he had knew. a nose for it. Yeah, he literally yeah. had a news, nose for it. And I was like blown away by that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that explains everything. Yeah, <laughs> hidden gyms. <laughs> sudden death <laughs> what, what are the, the that, that what are the risks of, of brewing your own squawky oh, that is a good question because it's not not for uh, the faint of heart all right having too good of a time uh, <laughs> really really bad uh, hangovers headaches but the biggest risk is botulism and there were prisoners like in arizona four four or five years ago who caught botulism and almost died from brewing some squawky so Definitely don't recommend it. I recipe cards for everybody if you're interested. But there are big warnings on the back that you can die from this. But, you know, 
we're all in like you can quarantine, die from, right? so. <laughs> quarantine times. Your risk was coming <laughs> out this it's evening, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anything else? Well, thanks. This was fun. Thanks for letting yeah, me be a part of uh, of this. And Sky will be back soon, everyone. Yes, Have no yeah, fear. Yeah. Um, and uh, we will definitely look forward to the next episode. Yeah, we love to end with uh, a little saying here. Uh, do your own time. Do your own number. And we'll see you all again soon. Thank you for coming. There it is. <laughs> subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode follow our facebook group at behind gray walls podcast and new this season we have a podcast instagram as well you can find us on instagram at behind gray walls pod Okay, then. That was our episode. Behind Gray Walls, come to Story Fort Presents, Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest, Pod on Pod. We really enjoyed working with Anthony and Amber and Sky, who was not able to make that recording, um, is awesome as well. Check out all they do out there at the old Idaho Penitentiary at history.org. Idaho.gov. Check out the Eavesdrop Podcast Network at ease-drop.com. And just, hey, we'll see you at the fest soon, but we miss you. And we can't wait for September. Check out all things Treefort at treefortmusicfest.com. Thanks to Up Is The Down Is The. And I'll say it again. We shall see you at the fest. But tomorrow never came.